All right, if you would, open your Bibles to your New Testament, to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapters 6, 7, and 8 today. A lot of it will be on the PowerPoint, but I always think it's helpful if you follow along and copy the text, and that'll be our main text today. So we have a, a decent crowd here for our second service, but as I mentioned in the welcome, a group at Camp Deer Run, a group in Honduras, and a youth group gone off to Nebraska for a church camp, uh, with the crowd is a little bit thinner that means I can see your faces easier. You don't blend in. So I, as I challenged the first service, I would appreciate it if you would just smile every once in a while. So I know you're not mad at me. Can you practice that right now? Everybody just smile real big. Some of you are trying. Some of you, you don't know how to do that during a sermon. Uh, we go, thank you. A wave. Thanks, Sean. So sometimes you look out and people just look like this. It's like it's helpful to smile every once in a while. So keep that in mind as we go throughout this sermon. And we're going to span over three chapters. We're not going to look at every verse. We're going to highlight a few things. I'm going to point a few things out to you. And I want to start with John chapter 8 and verse 25. It's on the screen. It's just three words. After Jesus has been questioned over and over and over again about His identity, they finally just ask Him, Who are you? Who are you? That's probably a question that we may all ask at some point about Jesus. Who is Jesus? What does that mean to my life? Who are you? And you flip that around and you ask yourself the same question, who am I? That's probably a question that we might all ask ourselves at some point. Over the last six weeks, this is now the seventh week, we've been talking about anxiety. Um, it's kind of a broad sermon topic. You know, we've also talked about the disquieted soul and how anxiety and the disquieted soul are kind of the same thing. And we're looking at this broad topic and, and several sub-themes that go along with it, but I'm trying not to overuse the word anxiety in case you're thinking, well, I don't have anxiety, so none of this applies to me. But today, as we look at just kind of another facet of that, I want to get to the, some of the root problems of what may cause a disquieted soul. And one of the root problems is knowing who we are, knowing our identity. And if we don't know that, well, that will lead to some... Anxiety will lead to the disquieted soul. This is a picture of Joe Lewis. He was the heavyweight boxing champion of the world from 1937 to 1948. That's a pretty long time, over a decade, of beating everybody up. Well, there's a story about when he was in the Army. Um, one day he was driving and he had a fellow soldier in the car with him. And he was involved in a minor collision. Uh, he hit a truck driver, truck driver hit him, depends on who's giving their perspective of the story. But the truck driver gets out of the car and he goes over to Joe Lewis and he points his finger at him and he starts yelling at him, berating him and swearing at him. And this truck driver has no idea who it is that he's actually talking to. But Joe Lewis just sat in the front seat smiling. He didn't react, he didn't get out and do anything. And finally his buddy that was with him in the truck said, dude, you are, well, maybe he didn't say dude back then. Maybe he said, you're Joe Lewis. Like, you are the heavyweight champion in the world. Why don't you just get out and knock that guy out? Make him be quiet. And Joe Lewis sat there for a second. He said, why would I do that? I know who I am. I've got nothing to prove to that guy. And when I read that story, I thought that says a lot about being secure in who you are. If he felt the need to get out of his truck and knock this guy out, well, he could have done that. But what would that prove? I think it says a lot more about his character, that he was secure in who he was, 
that all he needed to do is sit there and smile. He was a non-anxious presence. And the text that we're going to look at today, as we span over these different verses, you're going to see, in my opinion, that Jesus was a non-anxious, calm presence. Even though he was facing a lot of pressure, he was being attacked, he was under scrutiny. And I'm going to show you what he was under quickly. We'll go through several passages here in just a second. And then I want to show you how Jesus responded and maybe kind of get to some of the depths of why he responded the way he did and how, how this could apply to us. So let's jump into the text. I call this section the identity interrogation. So you'll see it, see it starting in chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. This crowd wants to force him to become king because they want a military king. So Jesus escapes from their presence walks on water, goes to the other side of the lake, but the crowd is still looking for him. They follow him over there. They find him, and Jesus calls him out, and he said, you're only looking for me, basically, because you got free food. But he takes that opportunity to take it deeper, and he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. But the crowd responds in verse 42, and it said, they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? This is the beginning of his identity being in question. They're saying, wait a minute, you can't come from heaven, even though you just fed us miraculously. We know your parents. We know where you're from. You can't be who you claim to be. And then you skip over to chapter 7. Okay, We covered 6 really quickly, now we're in 7. And I'm going to show you several verses from chapter 7, but I want to set it up in the first five verses. So follow with that. We're starting verse 1 and 2. So after this, Jesus went around Galilee. He did not want to go about Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. Jesus knew that his life was in danger, but his hour had not yet come. If you are familiar with the Gospel of John, this idea of his hour is important, referring to the cross, the resurrection. His hour has not yet come, but his life is in danger. In verse 2, it says, when the festival, the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near. Some of your translations may say the festival of booths. In the Jewish history, there were three main feasts. Uh, the Passover, Pentecost, and six months later, tabernacles, where the Jewish people would travel to Jerusalem for a big festival. And they, for the festival of the tabernacles, they would travel wintertime, and they would stay there for eight days. So everybody's going to Jerusalem. And then his brothers speak up in verse 3 and 4. Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. We'll find out in verse 5 that they're mocking him a little bit. But what they show in verse 3 and 4, his brothers, is this need for worldly affirmation. They're saying, hey, go show yourself to the world. Go prove yourself. If you really are who you say you are, you've got to prove it. Other people have to affirm it in you. And then in verse 5 it says, or John tells us, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So they're mocking him. They don't believe him. They're thinking, we grew up with you. You are our older brother. We know who you are. You can't be the Son of God, right? Now, they will eventually believe in Jesus, but not here, not now. Okay, so you get the idea, right? He's, his identity is in question. They go on to Jerusalem. 
If you keep reading the text, Jesus will follow, but he goes secretly. He goes by himself, at least initially. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, he's hearing rumors. And we're told in verse, skip it down to verse 12 and 13. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything about him publicly for fear of the leaders. Imagine being in Jesus' shoes. Your brothers don't believe in you. Right? So that's got to affect you one way or the other. He finally does travel to Jerusalem. He goes in kind of secretly, but he's hearing rumors. He's hearing whispering about himself. Imagine how that would feel. The rumors are about you. If you've ever heard a rumor about yourself, whether it was true or not true, or maybe elements of truth, what do you want to do? You want to clear things up. You want to set the record straight. So Jesus enters into this town, into Jerusalem, into the time of the festival. People are talking about it. And you skip on to verse 15. Jesus starts teaching. So now he goes from being a secret to public. In the middle of this festival and the teaching, the crowd says the Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? So not only are they questioning who he is, what his identity is, but now they're asking about his credentials. What gives him the authority to teach? Who taught him? How did he master the law? Where did he go to college? What did he get a degree in? You know, they're wanting to know what gives him the right to teach, which is a way of questioning his identity. But that doesn't phase him. He keeps teaching. And then we're told in verse 20, after he mentions that there's people wanting to kill him, they're like, who wants to kill you? You're demon-possessed. So now they're calling the Son of God, the Christ, demon-possessed. Not the only time in the Gospels where somebody refers to Jesus as being demon-possessed. So take a current summary of what we've talked about so far. Chapter 6, the crowds say, you can't be the bread of life because we know your parents. Beginning of chapter 7, his brothers don't believe in him. Then he goes to Jerusalem and it says the crowds were whispering about him, spreading rumors about him. Then they question his authority to teach. And now they're saying he is demon-possessed. Do you get the idea so far? He's being, his identity is just being interrogated. If that were me, I think I would start to struggle at some point when I'm hearing from so many different people who they think that I am. Verse 27, again the crowd says, but we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. You'll find out in a minute that the crowds even contradict themselves, but basically they're trying to convince themselves that he really, they're trying to convince themselves that he really is not the the Messiah. They're saying, no, he can't be because he would be more mysterious. We wouldn't know where he is from. We know where this guy's from. Skip down again to verse 31. Still many in the crowd believed in him. So that's a good thing. But they said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? Again, if you're reading the Gospel of John, signs is an important word. Jesus performed many signs, like John's way of saying, a miracle or, or something powerful, a powerful deed. You remember the first sign that Jesus performed in the Gospel of John? Anybody remember? John chapter 2, when He turns water into wine, that was His first of many signs. He walks on water. He feeds thousands of people out in the middle of nowhere. He casts out demons. He heals people. He's performing all these signs, but yet here they're saying, shouldn't He be doing more? 
If he really was the Messiah, shouldn't he perform more signs than this? Skip to verse 40 through 43, and there's more of just a summary of what the crowd is thinking about him. On hearing his words, some, pe- some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, from the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. There's more whispering, more rumors about him. Wait, yeah, maybe he is the Messiah. No, he's just a prophet. No, if he was the Messiah, he would actually come from Bethlehem, even though earlier in the chapter they said, we don't know where the Messiah will come from. And they don't realize that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem, but raised in Galilee. So it's just a big mixed up mess. And they don't know who Jesus really is, but they sure are questioning that. His identity is under interrogation. It makes me think of this guy's story. His name is Henry Nowen. I've actually shared his story with you before. Uh, he was a professor, Bible professor at Yale Divinity School, he, at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, he wrote books and degrees, smart guy with all these credentials, and everybody knew who he was. But in the middle of his adult life, he felt the stirring from God within him. He left all of that behind, and he went to work with people that were impoverished, and eventually he landed in Toronto, Canada, where he worked with those with mental disabilities. And after being there for a few years, he realized that the people that he was now serving and working with, they didn't know who he was, his background, they didn't care about all the degrees that he had or all the books that he had written, and he realized for the first time in his life, he couldn't fall back on all that stuff. He had found his identity in his education, and his accomplishments. And now all of a sudden when that was stripped away from him, he found himself for the first time asking, who am I? Who is Henry? And after working through this and wrestling with it for a while, he was asked to speak at some conference. And in this conference, he very famously said, after he's talking about his own identity, he said, as human beings, we all bounce around from these three different, very human lives. The three human lies are, I am what I have, I am what I do, or I am what others say or think about me. He said, most of us, at some point in our lives, are probably going to fall prey to believing in one of those lies. I am what I have, my possessions, I guess. You know, you could go on and on. I am what I do, your job, your profession, finding your identity in that, or finding your identity in just how other people view you what people say about you, what people think about you. Now, I bring this up because what we're looking at here in John chapter 6, 7, and 8, thankfully, Jesus didn't believe that third lie. I am what others say or think about me. Because if He did, I don't think Jesus would have carried on. There's no way Jesus would have been able to continue on in His ministry if He believed what other people said about Him. His identity is being attacked, and he's okay. He's composed. Jesus keeps his composure. He doesn't fly off the handle. He he responds to people. He keeps teaching. He responds when he needs to, but he keeps his composure. In our world today, when somebody loses it and they get really mad, they go on a rant on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and they do this passive-aggressive thing where they're attacking somebody, but they don't say their name. Jesus didn't do any of that. He was composed. 
He was secure and grounded in who he was. His identity. Even while everybody else was trying to tell him who they thought he was. He was secure and grounded in who he was, and he remained that non-anxious presence. So how could Jesus do that? Or, or why was Jesus able to be so secure and grounded in who he was? Well, I think there's two main reasons why. And it comes from John chapter 8. So if you're following in the text, you can flip over there. And I, I'm not going to read through much of John chapter 8. I'm really just going to focus on a part of one verse. And you saw from the Scripture reading, Jesus makes this bold claim, I am the light of the world. And they start questioning, how can you say that? How is your testimony valid? And in John chapter 8 and verse 14, just these two things that Jesus says. He said, I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. He is completely unfazed by the opinions of others. And in my opinion, this is something you might miss if you were just doing a quick read-through of John 7 and 8. But if you slow down, which we are about to for the next few minutes, and really take a look at this, Jesus said, I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. And I think as Christ followers, we would do well to know these two things about ourselves also. So take that first line, I know where I came from. I'm going to look at myself as an example. I'll share some of my own story. I was born and raised in Greenville, Texas. I know where I came from. And I was thinking back to when I was 18 years old, I graduated high school. That summer, I went to work at Camp Deer Run, which is where so many people are today. After that, I went back home for a couple of weeks, and then I moved to ACU. Now, the day that I packed my stuff up to leave and go to college, I didn't realize it at the time, like how significant of a moment that was and how emotional and difficult that would be for parents. So my mom was sobbing, and my dad shows his emotions in his own way, and when he walked me to the car, he shook my hand and he said, well, Jody, we've enjoyed having you. And then he said, you're on your own now. And I appreciated that because it made me laugh and it kind of broke the tension a little bit. But when he said, we've enjoyed having you, you're on your own now, it's kind of eerie looking back on how true that was. Because I never lived at home again. I was welcome, and I would come back for Christmas break or spring break or things like that. But I never lived full-time at home again. In fact, as soon as I was gone, my younger brother moved all of my stuff out of my room and moved his stuff in there, and I never even really had a room again. Now, even though I'd come back from time to time, I never lived at home again, and I've doubled my life since then. I'm 37 now, so I've lived longer on, on the other side of that moment than before it. But I can honestly say, and I think it's true for you as well, that home still lives in me. Or maybe another way of putting it is family history lives inside all of us. The people that raised you, your parents, your grandparents, people that you're close with, like your siblings or other significant uh, figures in your life, they had a profound impact on why you are the way that you are. They imprinted certain ways of thinking and behaving in you, maybe in ways that you don't even realize. When Jesus says, I know where I came from, it's important to understand, why are we the way that we are? Well, you could ask yourself this question, or ask it in a variety of ways. What's your personality like? What's your sense of humor like? What skills do you have? What are some of your hobbies? How do you manage your time? How do you manage conflict? 
What do you prefer to do on holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving, beyond? Think about all those things. Think about you and the way that you are. And do you see a little bit of your parents or your grandparents in you? Do you see a little bit of your siblings or other important adult figures in your life growing up? The way that you are now is because that was a part of you growing up and it follows you for the rest of your life. You are the way that you are because of where you came from. It's important for us to know that and realize that. Uh, I, I realized that in, a, I guess, a more intense way. Several years ago, I had to do a genogram. If you've ever done one of those, you map out your family tree and you go back to your grandparents and your siblings and your relationship with them and all of that. And it really enlightened me and helped me with this self-discovery journey of why I am the way I am, think the way that I do, and respond the way that I do. Back in February, we brought in Steve Meeks. Hey, was anybody at that training that Saturday? Some of you were. Okay, a few of you were. He did. He trained us on core story mapping. And Steve Meeks took us back through your whole family history. And there's so many details to it, I can't even begin to cover it. But the reason that we brought him in is because we knew that would be a powerful exercise to help you know why you are the way you are. A little bit of family history lives inside all of us. So when Jesus says, I know where I came from, I think he has something deeper in mind, which we'll look at in just a second. But it's important for us to know that. And as I I shared this at the senior banquet last month, and I told them, and I'll share it with you, that God has placed us in a particular family of origin. Like for good or for bad, some of you maybe aren't, Maybe you have bad memories or whatever. We won't get into all of that. But remember, God has placed you in the families that you grew up in, and you are the way you are because of that. At some point in our lives, we have to just investigate that a little bit and do a little self-discovery. However, Jesus didn't stop there in John 8, 14. He said, I know where I came from, but also, He said, I know where I'm going. And probably just as important, if not more important, of knowing where we came from is knowing where we're going. Now, when Jesus says that, and we think about it for our own life, it's not just about like what job you're going to have, what salary you're going to have, where you're going to live. I think maybe a better way of rephrasing that for our understanding is, who are you becoming? So put it in a question form. Who are you becoming? Who do you want to be? So five years ago, summer of 2017, my first summer here, I asked this next question to you. As a church, for those of you who are here, said if you can look 10 years down the road, what kind of person do you want to be? What kind of marriage do you want to have? What kind of relationship with your kids do you want to have? What kind of church do we want to have? Now, I know we can't predict the future, but if I were to, you know, I'm asking you this question again today, 10 years down the road, most people's response is that is so far away, I can't even think about it. But just like that, here we are. Five years later, from the time I originally asked you the question, if you were here that Sunday, we're halfway there to that 10-year mark. It goes by so quickly. What kind of person do you want to become? I don't know of anybody that would say, I hope that 10 years from now, I hope to be a more miserable person. I hope that I am angry, that I am bitter, that I am unforgiving, and I hold on to grudges, and I have some kind of addiction, and I'm just overall unhappy in life. I don't know of anybody that would answer this question that way. Because nobody desires that. 
Hopefully the way we would answer the question as followers of Jesus is 10 years from now, we hope to, by the help of the Holy Spirit, be more like Christ in our individual lives and in our marriages. Hopefully that is the true answer of where we want to be and who we want to become. But truthfully, how are we going to get there? Well, the decisions we're making now, the habits, the choices that we have, the spiritual disciplines that we either engage in or we don't engage in, that will determine who we become. I know we can't predict the future, but you will become your choices and your habits now. But who do you want to become? And the one thing that Jesus says here in John 8 and 14, these identity markers, I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. And knowing that for us will help us come to grips with who am I? We can start to answer that question. Well, Here's who I was. Here's why I am the way that I am because of how I was raised. But here's who I'm becoming in Christ Jesus. This verse was repeated later in the, or is repeated later in the Gospel of John. It's just reworded a bit. John, as the narrator in John chapter 13, he says a few things. He writes, Jesus knew that the Father put all things under His power. Now that's, a, that's about authority. That's about Jesus realizing He has the authority to do whatever that He wants to do. But the next line, it says, the Father put all things under His power and that He knew that He had come from God and that He was returning to God. There it is. This is what Jesus said that He knew back in John 8, 14. He knows where where He came from. He knows that He's come from God and He knows that He's returning to God. Those two identity markers... Help keep Jesus secure and grounded when his identity was under attack. Help keep his composure and help him remain a non-anxious presence. And when he comes to this full realization, what does he do? Well, if you kept reading in John 13, he washes his disciples' feet. He takes on the role of a servant, not the master. And then later that day, or the next day, he walks willingly to his own death, death on the cross. When he had full self-knowledge of who he was, he willingly sacrificed himself. If we can start to answer this question, who are you? Who am I? We know where we've come from and we know where we're going. Hopefully, we can learn to become more like Christ, become more servant-hearted and being willing to give ourselves up on on behalf of other people. So this morning, if you have trouble knowing where you came from or where you're going or you want to know Jesus and where He came from and where He is now, if we can help you discover that, please come talk with myself or one of our elders. We're going to stand up here in just a second, sing an invitation song. That's a great time for you to come talk with one of us if you need to. I want to invite you to stand and let's continue to sing.